I know that during this retreat, during these last days, um, there has been already a lot of talking and teaching and information. And um, I'm also aware that there's only that much that we actually can take in. There's like this nice simile. I think it comes from the Zen tradition of the cup that is already full. <laughs> if you pour more, if you pour pour more in, it doesn't mean <laughs> that there's actually more there. So, <laughs> nevertheless, I give it a try. I see what happens, and also I see what comes tonight. Um, so. Yeah, here we are practicing together and um, I feel like it became quite clear yesterday with the questions that came in from you but also um, with the questions, the themes that came up during the interview and there are a few things that I like to bring back into the the whole group because I feel in some ways they are relevant for all of us and I hope that it's supportive. I hope it is a means to kind of also like giving you the feeling that with what comes up you're not alone in that. Many here have similar experiences and maybe you're not yet really aware about it. Like one of the obvious themes that I experienced in meeting the groups was um, the shared, or like what came up again and again is the, the theme of the inner critic and how to relate to that, him, her, that. <laughs> yeah. So um, I like I'd like to start with something that I know for myself quite well, and I also heard a few of you mentioning it. It's like one aspect of the inner critic is the constantly, how do you say, charting away, jabbing away of the commentator. Do you know him or her? (laughs) It's just like, it's an aspect that manifests and it can be so incredibly undermining, disturbing, confusing, all kinds of things. One, and one thing that I personally feel about this uh, inner institution <laughs> is I think it's, cha- it's shameless. Yeah? It's absolutely non-coherent, and just impossible. <laughs> it like 
I'll just try to come up with an example. Like you, like say you are you are waiting to meet with a friend, or you are, or say with a colleague. It doesn't really matter who it is, and the person is overdue, and you are waiting already since like say half an hour, wherever it is. And so the inner commentary is starting to come in, and interesting enough, like it kind of like it comes from the point of criticizing you. Like I just give a few example, like coming in with sentences like "you should have known better," like it's not the first time that this happens, <laughs> and. And kind of, it almost blames you that you try to to meet with the person, whoever it is. And then, like, say, so it comes and it really has a go at it. Yeah, it kind of uh, reduces you to gravel to nothing by its commentaries about what is going on. And. Then maybe five minutes later, you get a phone call from the person that you expected, and the person is apologizing, explaining why he or she couldn't come, and then watch the commentator. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, it it goes into whom the opposite position. Yeah, <laughs> it's like. You should have known that this person has a reason, of course, you know. And somehow, it's so shameless. Sometimes it's and so ridiculous. And yet, the point I feel like the point that we have to look at is how much do we actually believe in what this inner institution is telling us? Yeah, how much do we take on board what is coming from that side? I remember for myself that for I th- I, I think it's even years in my practice and even years into a monastery life that I felt like. This inner critique or this inner institution, if it's terrible, actually turns into a tyrant, and is again shameless with that. It just is. It can bring so much misery into your life. So, what I want to say about this is, it comes over very often with the disguise of wisdom, with the disguise of truth. Yeah? I'm telling you the truth here, whether you want to know it or not. I know it, <laughs> and and we buy in again and again. And I've done it myself. And like when when this inner institution, like when the when the um, commentator gets very strong and turns into a tyrant, it can really make your life completely miserable and it's almost like sometimes it comes from the point of well if you haven't really suffered quite a bit your practice isn't really going well is it <laughs> like like to to grow 
and to and to go somewhere you you really have to acknowledge like that you are really not much worse or like that you you are really quite a miserable person there's not much happening with you yeah? forget about it <laughs> and and we we are questioning it uh, we we actually don't question it we we take it on board and we really think f- like in regards to this inner institution we do have to prove ourselves yeah we have to prove ourselves that like ajahn uh, suchita said this morning he spoke about the uh, boarding school boys yeah we have to prove that we are a good boy a good girl and we are here um and we really do our best we work hard yeah and of course part of that is is part of the practice but that in a institution is putting obstacles putting um difficulties into our way and it does not actually it doesn't come it's not a voice of truth is not a vo- it is not a voice of wisdom and we have to really identify that we have to it's like when when the voice comes in and especially when it is highly critical we we have to allow ourselves to question that is that really so yeah is that what you come up with here what what is there really a ground to that and if so then show me what the ground is so you you actually um you you make a step out of that fear that is diminishing you it's a kind of energetic field and if you get drawn into it there is not much left about a feeling of confidence of self-worth or or like even let alone kindness yeah kindness towards yourself or compassion towards yourself in that field in that energetic field it has no place it can't grow in there um there's a there's a very nice uh, story in the in the suttas and it's about um a demon who comes into the uh out of the castle or abiding place of saka i think is it saka the the king of the the gods i think it it's saka yeah. um so it comes into the dwelling case, uh, place of saka and saka is the king of the gods so you can imagine wonderful place in, amazing yeah at the moment that the demon comes in and he chooses that moment saka isn't at home he has gone out with most of his retinue so the castle is almost empty not many devas smaller gods are left yeah so they are 
and they they see the de- the, the demon coming in, and they are very afraid of him. And the demon the demon feels that they are very afraid of him, and with that he grows bigger and stronger. Yeah? <laughs> and so the the devas that are left there, they try to obey the demon. And at first they say, well, you can't come here. That is Saka's place. That's the king of the gods. What are you doing here? <laughs> and the demon says, I'm the owner of this place now, and I'm going to live here, and you are my servants. Yeah? So you have, and, and uh, the devas are completely frightened by the demon. They, they are almost like frozen. They don't know what to do because they are there to hold the castle for, for Saka, the, the king of the gods, and they can't handle the, the demon. So, and the demon is taking over the place and making himself at home. And with the fear of the, of the devas who are left, he grows stronger and stronger. So after a little while, I don't remember how long, but after maybe a few days, Saka comes back with his retinue. He comes to the castle and he sees the demon sitting on his throne. Demon full emblazed with his own importance yeah? and his, his uh, experience of power. Like he has taken Saka's place now. And it's very interesting how Saka actually relates to that. So he comes in, he sees, checks out the situation, sees what's happening. The, de- the devas that were left come to him and say, Oh, my Lord, we can't, we can't handle this. We don't know what to do with this. And he says to them, he's completely relaxed. Yeah? And he says to them, leave it up to me. <laughs> so... Saka comes into the castle and he bows to the demon and he says to him, what an honor. <laughs> you have come to this place and, and you have settled in and, and you are now here and you are living here. What an honor for all of us. I would have never thought that this would happen. So I'm, I'm, mes- I'm making it a little bit up right now. Yeah? <laughs> but, but basically what he does it is he, he relates to the demon with kindness. And guess what happens? Yeah? The demon shrinks. Yeah? Demons don't want to be treated with kindness. They, they love resistance. They love um, maybe negative emotions, but they definitely don't love, they, they don't love kindness, compassion, anything beautiful. Yeah? That makes them, that takes their ground away. So, suck Saka was around him serving the demon and and just doing his job. <laughs> and in in a very short period of time there was nothing left of that demon. Yeah. So I feel 
This is a wonderful example of how we can relate to our inner demons, how we can relate to those aspects of ourselves that are constantly criticizing, constantly put pressure on us. And one of the signs for them is we are never good enough. Whatever you do, it is never good enough. And the turn, the inner turn that we have to find, that we that we somehow have to find in ourselves is okay. There is this. I call it a demon now, but you know I don't believe that there is really a demon inside. <laughs> it's like a, a negative mental state. So the turn is to see what is actually underlying there. Every so-called demon demon carries a certain need, carries a certain something that hasn't been taken care of. Uh, Maybe an experience very early on in our lives. We don't have to analyze that, but I'm just showing you that what what we do by turning towards them, by embracing them, by touching them, by acknowledging them, is we are we are actually connecting with with the wholeness of the experience, and there's more to it than just the nasty, difficult bit. Yeah? And if we look deeper into it, we can understand what it is. One thing with the inner critique and with the inner voices is that they are, they are not really our voices. Yeah? They are somehow, they are the voices we have internalized while we are growing up, while we are um, conditioned in this life, like early on in our childhood, through our like parents, teachers, siblings, whatever it is, or whatever, however these voices um, have crystallized. But, and they somehow, because when they were talking to us earlier on, we were in the position where we really believed in the truth of what they said yeah, at that time when we were much smaller, had not so much wisdom, not so much understanding, not the, the discernment to really look at what was said there and how that really applies to where I am now. So that all was not there, but so these voices, they came over to us as the voices of truth. So just imagine you take them in, you internalize them, and now you are maybe 28, 35, 56, 64, that's me, <laughs> you know, and, 
And they are, they are coming up. And do we still believe them? Do we still have to believe them? Do we, do we still have, um, have to relate to them as if we have to obey them? Yeah? Do, do we really need to do that? So when I said earlier on, it's, it's really good to question this. It's good to look at those um, almost like inherited luggage. The other day I was, ta- I was talking about why don't we put some of our luggage down? This is some of the luggage that I definitely find important to be put down because they, it's luggage that doesn't really belong to us. It has come out somehow atta- itself attached to us, but it's up to us to say, hmm, okay, I see this, but actually I think I live much better without you. <laughs> I don't really need you. Yeah. So it's time to put it down. Can we do that? The, the putting down of the luggage happens via kindness and compassion is also important. And another important tool is really is wisdom, is discernment, is really seeing what are we relating to here? How relevant is that to my life now? How um, can I actually take off the blindfold and see what is real at this moment? So that is the discernment, that is the, the wisdom aspect. But also kindness in terms of actually... I care for my well-being and I do care in what way I'm relating, like in what way my inner dialogues happen. Yeah? And this is where I can step in and this is where I can say, hey, actually, maybe a change is a good thing here. To, so to turn away from the disparaging voice when you, like say, when you have done a mistake, when you feel miserable, so instead of disparaging yourself, to when that voice comes in to say, thank you very much, right now I do need something else. And to see, like, maybe some empathy, maybe some kindness is much more helpful and much more supportive and nourishing at this moment in time. And I think for most of us, and including myself in this, it's almost like we have to learn another language. We have to learn another way of how we are, how we could relate to ourselves. Yeah? How we could relate to ourselves when, when we find, like when when we experience sadness, when we are not at our best, when we are in a place where, where we feel like, hmm, I rather wouldn't be here, but here I am. Yeah? And 
instead of then putting yourself even more down to turn towards, hmm, okay, what is actually needed here? What, what kind of quality or what kind of need is there that needs nourishment? How can I bring that into my life? It's like at one point, and it was during my monastic life, we did, uh, as a group of nuns, we did some kind of so-called training of how to nourish ourselves. Yeah, Even as nuns, <laughs> it's, it's like you, you are... like. Like, for example, you are supposed to be good all the time because you're a nun. <laughs> but in order to at least bring something of that over, you have to have a source inside that, um, that needs nourishment from time to time. And we have to learn in what or in which ways we can actually nourish that, those, those aspects, those points. And like one thing that I learned for myself was that one thing is really being in contact with good friends, when, like say when I feel low, to, to be able to share without getting judged. Yeah? And if there is no outer friend around, can we develop that inner friend that is receiving, that, that we are actually able to receive ourselves with, uh, with, like, with the, with that, um, what is the right word? With that attitude as how we would relate to somebody who we care for, who we love, who we appreciate. Yeah? If, like say, if a friend comes to you and that person isn't really doing very well, maybe health reasons, maybe work, whatever, doesn't really matter. Yeah? You would not go and sit with the friends and say, well, well you should really do better. <laughs> You know, how come you find yourself again in this place? Yeah, that we we would not do that. But why on earth do we do that with ourselves? Yeah. So when I say like, can we be our own friends? It's it's kind of it's a real turning away from criticizing to accepting, acknowledging, seeing and receiving ourselves with where we are. Yeah? It doesn't mean that when we like say that it doesn't mean that we delude ourselves, yeah. When when something didn't go well we don't say, Oh you do fantastic <laughs> I wouldn't believe that if I would come with these kind of things towards myself. But but, like, the turning point is more like, hmm, feels really awful, doesn't it? So, like, that is the point of connecting with, emphasizing, caring, holding, yeah? 
And it's a choice. It's kind of that the turning point is the choice to say, well, actually, I can't expect always somebody else out there to be available to do that, but maybe can I find ways of relating in that way to myself? And sometimes I need to remind myself and say, hey, Meta, actually right now Meta is needed. (laughs) It's funny with this name, (laughs) when you have that name, it's just... It should be a constant reminder, but it is not always. <laughs> and so I, I sometimes I really have to say, okay, meta means meta. <laughs> and so, but, um, yeah, so, so kind of, and you have, for, for yourself, you have to find your means of how you can develop that. Another way of nourishing, I fear, and it helps me when I'm feeling a little bit low and maybe sad and not quite sure why. It's like going out into nature. And it can rain. I mean, I've lived for almost 25 years in England, so I'm used to that. <laughs> and it can rain, it can be cold, never mind. You know, just to kind of get out of this little cell, and I mean almost like the, the inner cell, like the inner prison, and to move into something that is wider than just this. And by, by doing that, there is, it feels almost as if the elements that make out this body merge with the elements that are out there. And by that being happening, it feels there is a process of harmonizing. I remember even, like in the monasteries, we we do have three months of winter retreat and um, also like this year I was at Dhammapala like a few years ago I spent the winter at Chitta Viveka and I spent, even in the winter I spent a lot of time sitting outside I was just huddling up myself in blankets so that I was warm enough to sit but I really felt like the nourishment of that the nature that was there I mean I have to say and yeah, I can, I can say that. <laughs> Chitta Viveka is a beautiful place. Like, as much as Beatenberg is a beautiful place in a beautiful setting. We don't, in Chitta Viveka, we don't have these kind of mountains. <laughs> but it's, it's a very natural, like say, English natural beauty, cottages, manor house, park, you know, it's, it's really lovely. So, and lots of nature around. So, what I found really at that time, what I, what I found helpful was when things got overwhelming, when I felt like I had to carry too much and I don't know how to hold it all. Sometimes I just went out into the forest, yeah, sitting somewhere next to a tree and we have in the forest there, we have a very big yew tree. 
wonderful sitting just under the yew tree. It's almost like the, how do you say, the, the branches of the yew tree are almost kind of <laughs> engulfing your body. Like they are almost holding your body. You're under this tree, you know. It's like under the umbrella of something benevolent. Yeah. So I find that is something like nature is something that is very nourishing and very kind of supportive in a way because it, like for myself, how I experience this, it allows the mind and also the body to just be more calm, to be more simple, and to move out of all the complexities that the mind can come up with and our lives can move us into. So I find nature very very helpful as a means of of relaxing of being more at ease and sometimes i also find just really reading a good book yeah like finding like say finding a good like for myself finding a really good dhamma book and and to kind of really dive into that and kind of relate uh, that what is written about it towards my own experience. Often, like, you take a book, you open it, you read, and vum, <laughs> it is exactly what you needed to, what you needed to hear or read or to take in. And then that kind of sets into process. Um, a way of reflecting about what's going on. So, so my encouragement is, see, if you know already what is nourishing you, do you have means that support you in times when you need it? Yeah. When we are, when we are well, when, when the practice goes fantastic, and we sit down and we go into blissful states. Wonderful, yeah? Enjoy them, yeah? So don't feel that as soon as you have, as you are sitting down, uh, as soon as you're meditating, now you have to really dig in and <laughs> dig out all the heavy stuff. That comes by itself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it really is. It's like sometimes we we forget that a really important part of our practice is also to develop the joy, to develop um, the wholesome states of mind, to develop goodwill, to develop well-being is... I mean, it's such an important part of our practice. And when we notice that other bits come in, like say, um, like say a problem with anger or whatever, you know, or sadness, grief, um, like say, or very strong desire that can drive you away. It's like, that is the time when we do the work with the affliction. But when the meditation, when the practice is really going well, 
then by all means enjoy that. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you have to say, "No, mm, I'm not really working hard enough, so I should dig out some of the sticky bits." <laughs> they come. <laughs> you don't need to. You don't need to kind of look around to search for them. They they come in their own time, and I know. I mean, I know you all know that, but it's like the encouragement is: don't feel like you have to create them to come into the practice on top of everything else that is going on. We don't need to do that. When the time is right, they knock at the door, and sometimes they don't even knock; they just rush in. <laughs> so. And then it's the time when we have to welcome them and have to find ways of of relating to them and holding them. I'm saying this also because one of the questions that we found yesterday uh, in the in the black box <laughs> uh, was about this. Uh, like, do I need to dig in and get it all going, or what do I do? So my my suggestion is. Wait until it comes. It comes by itself, and when it comes, it's the right time to relate to it, to deal with it. Um, um, so I feel like that is about inner critique, tyrant, how to relate to it, how to build up some inner resilience to kind of not getting lost in those states of mind. Another aspect of questions that came in yesterday and also some, at some point today was like how to practice when you are back at home and how to relate to the complexity of your lives outside of this place, outside of the retreat. And I think for many of us or for many of you, this is a real challenge, you know. It's like being here at least, um, the whole environment is set up to support you. It's set up to, to, um, to focus on the practice, to find ways of relating to inner states that might be wholesome and beautiful or that might be afflictive and and difficult to relate to. When especially with the with the difficult bits when they happen outside and in a way they do I, I know that for myself too. They do get steered up by the complexities that we meet when we are back in our everyday life, when, when we are back into going to work, family, relationships, and all the other things that you are doing that I probably just can't even think of, can't even comprehend right now. So, but what I'm talking about is how how that complexity can be really quite overwhelming, can kind of almost carry us away. There was one very lovely comment today by one of the 
people I saw and the person said I feel like when I come back home at least for a while I feel like I bring with me a protection so the protection is that I'm not immediately getting drawn into all the destructions yeah? all the destructions that are waiting outside for you yeah? movies <laughs> whatever whatever you do to entertain yourself yeah and what I understood like um, turning on the telly going out to do fancy things when like when I come from a retreat I feel I feel so well nourished that that I don't need that for a while yeah so and I want to take that and I really want to encourage you when you get home is there something like that is there something that you take with that you can um be aware like turn your awareness towards that yeah there is actually something you bring with there is a certain it's almost like tangible it's it's a certain um protective energy i would say that and it is protective in the way that you know when you are here and you are living in a in a field of simplicity and values that are really important for you like that brings a feeling of contentment at least to some degree i hope <laughs> um that brings that um place where you feel safe where you feel nourished where you feel hmm yeah this i'm i would like to i would like to have that or i would like to take that also with into lay life and i can't say what it is for you but i want to encourage you look while you are still here what are those qualities what are those energies those mind states that help you to create a certain kind of protection to keep at least for a while the simplicity yeah and even if it's just for a day yeah you come home don't immediately go into the old habits of doing this and that maybe just give yourself to freedom to have a day where where you just see how it is just to be yeah not to be somebody to be something but just just to be here yeah? and maybe your reality looks like you come back home next days working you know and then i do it mean it's very hard but maybe then um and maybe i'm really naive here <laughs> uh, i do as it's possible um <laughs> uh, but what i mean is there are areas in our lives and i hope that is also for you like that there are areas in our lives where we can create maybe more simplicity where we can create or 
where we can actually less create, <laughs> I should say, um, where there is the space of saying, hmm, no, maybe I don't need to do that. What's about just sitting here, just enjoying this moment? Instead of rushing off doing this, rushing off to meet that person, and rushing off to meet my friend to tell about the retreat. (laughs) I think that's one of the the things we all like to do. Um, Why don't you invite the friend to come to you, and you sit down with the friend, and you share a little bit about your meditation practice by sitting with them. They might not want to do that. I can see that. (laughs) But... I can say I even had that I even had that experience with my son. I'm an, a mother and my son is grown up and he's 42 now. But um, when he started to come to visit me at the monasteries in the beginning he was very very critical and what is what your brain washed? <laughs> what are you doing there? And I said, just come and have a look yourself and just spend some time here. <laughs> and actually, uh, the first time was a complete disaster <laughs> because we tried uh, to convince each other that we knew better than the, the, than the other one. I knew better what was good for him and he knew better what was good for me. Yeah? So that's a long time ago. That's more than 20 years ago. Um, now we we have come to a point where sometimes he actually, when we are together, and it's not often, but sometimes he says to me, hmm, and actually I'm very I'm very glad he he calls me Meta. He he says to me, Meta, do, do you mind just sitting together and you do a little bit of guidance? <laughs> <laughs> and so. So it doesn't happen often, but it has happened. And, and actually, it does happen. There is a kind of slight, slight increase. Yeah? It comes more often. Maybe also because he gets older, there's more stress in his life, and he actually sees that there are means that I happen to know <laughs> that I could share with him. And sometimes, of course, it is also just really sitting together and really sharing with an open heart, like where we are, what is happening in our lives. And and I like I feel like when I say invite a friend to you, like that's what I kind of mean, yeah. So really connecting instead of going out and doing something fancy, maybe. Connecting on a very simple level, but on a beautiful level, yeah? that can maybe be also f- for yourself and for the other person enriching. Just a consideration. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And something very important is to really, when you are back. And when you're back in your, how do you say, so to say, normal life, everyday life, see how you can keep the practice going. It's just, 
You see, like we we sometimes we live to, or some of us live to gather things to, and we call that a, a good life, like having an expensive car, having a fancy house, and this and this and. And I think we forget that these things actually don't bring happiness, don't bring contentment. And even if you have more of it, it doesn't mean that there is more contentment or more joy or more ease and well-being in your life. Yeah? Sometimes even saying, okay, if I work less, I own less money, but actually I do have more time to enjoy life. I don't need money to enjoy life. <laughs> these, these are considerations, and I'm not saying you should all quit your job, of course not, but like, it's more like how can we actually take what we understand, what we are getting aware of, how can we actually find ways of implementing that into our lives? So, of course, it's the practice and continuing with the practice, but the practice does not stop here on the mat or on the walking path. The practice when practice works well and when awareness, when when also like well-being and kindness, compassion, all those beautiful mental qualities, when they get developed, they don't, um, like their house is not on the mat. Yeah? We take them with to wherever we go, as more they are developed as more they will become part of our lives. And so I really I really want to encourage you in your practice, develop those qualities. De- like see what helps you to bring more awareness into your practice, bring more also kindness, the goodwill, the empathy. But then it doesn't stop when you get up from your cushion, just take it with you. Yeah? Allow it a place, or allow it to settle into this safe inner place, yeah? wherever that is for you, or that sacred place. And then when you need it, you can, okay, okay sacred place, yeah, safe place, where are you? <laughs> and kind of connecting with that. And somehow, to some degree, that actually does work. It, it, it helps. So I think I have said enough words, and I hope what I have been saying was beneficial. And I do offer that for your well-being. <laughs>